0: The uh, factors of enlightenment mindfulness, investigation of dhammas, willpower, and then delight. The next one is actually called tranquility, then concentration, and then equanimity. So, the words that are usually used for the translation of these factors are not exactly what the jhanas entail but they are what is involved in the jhanas so as we know the light is involved and the word joy is not used in the text of enlightenment it goes immediately to tranquility and then to concentration and then to the um, equanimity and yet we can tell from these four that they are the first four jhanas and these four aspects are so to say again part and parcel of what we do experience in the first four jhanas and the words are partially um, derivatives of what is going on because obviously there is no jhana without some tranquility. One can say that the first two jhanas, which I've already explained, and I'll just bring the third one, but the first two are a joyful excitement. Something joyous is happening. And one very often has a feeling, which is just, just a feeling, it's not any reality to it as if these first two jhanas are not completely drenching and suffusing one but are happening happening more in the upper regions well obviously from what I read out to you yesterday one should um, try and um, make those feelings drench the whole body, drench the whole person I think if we were to use person instead of body, we would have less misunderstandings. Uh, I've had several times people misunderstand thinking that this is what our body mind. Was. With the third one, one does get the impression as if the mind was going down, thinking down, going to more It's just an impression, but it has a feeling as if one is more grounded. And um, so the tranquility becomes more of a reality there. The uh, tranquility also exists, of course, in the second one, but not to the same extent. And we can see that it's quite possible that in the practice of enlightenment we are faced with the word concentration with from the third jhana on the and that sort of bears out the experiences because in the beginning first and second the mind Still has um, the tendency to wander off. It, uh, one can bring it back, but it does have the tendency not to be solidly um, focused on the um, meditation subject. Whereas when third jhana arises, the concentration and the focusing should be such that one isn't um, bothered with the mind's mind wanderings. If it does, it's easy to bring it back. The third jhana, which is contentment and peacefulness, I like to compare with sitting on the edge of a well. You can compare to anything you wish, that's just a personal comparison. And as you sit on the edge of the well and slowly let yourself down into the well, things become quieter and quieter, as they would if you were to go down the well. If you get down to the bottom, you are totally immersed in force chakra. But on the way down, it does the feel that one is going deeper but it it can be anything between 3rd and 4th it's not quite um, possible to see exactly at the time of moving the mind to a deeper concentration whether one has already arrived or not because the mind is trying to get more concentration if you take that simile of the well and there's nothing wrong with taking similes as um, triggers for imagination and Buddha use similes all the time then you can possibly use it in order to help the process of going deeper maybe if you don't need it that's fine uh, if we can go deeper without any assistance the, um, criteria that we can use is that on the way down the well we can still hear what's going up on top although it's very muted obviously if one is in the middle of the well going down in the well shaft uh, the sounds are muted but the nearer one is to the top the more the we can hear if one gets down to the bottom one doesn't hear the thing so a solid force jhana complete in all aspects is without hearing outer sound. Now it can very often happen that people do force jhanas and here and not here. And here and not here. Which means that the mind is a bit like a jewel, It goes down and comes up again and it goes down and comes up again. Which is a very natural thing for the mind to do it usually acts right that way so there is more work needed on this particular jhana to stay down at the bottom of the well we don't need to use that particular uh, simile if we don't like it uh, another one which is useful and has been used many times is being in the ocean and going under the wave not coming up for it which doesn't mean you have to stop breathing for heaven's sake, don't misunderstand that (laughs) Um, the breath is of no concern at that time it just means that we are totally immersed and that's the word for it totally immersed in stillness now the immersion is something that the Buddha mentions from first jhana onward. I read to you what he said about first jhana. He says similar things about all the rest of them. I um, didn't bring the um, uh, words of the Buddha with me. I have them at home because they are similar to what I read out, and he gives similes what it's like, and all of them point towards this total immersion in that particular jhana only when we have a total immersion can we really say and think that we have done it until then we're practicing and that's fine we should and the slightest um, taste we get of any of it will make it much easier to really work on it because they are not only fascinating but they are the natural way for the mind to go. Unless it it, uh, rummages around things, is descriptive, reacts, unless it does all of those things which we know so well, which we don't have to discuss again, that's the only way to go. Whether people know the word jhana or meditative absorption, whether they've ever heard of it or not, makes no difference whatsoever. That's where the mind goes if it doesn't do any of the other things. Since most people are completely engaged in doing the other things, thing, of thinking, reacting, and uh, projecting and so forth, <coughs> not many people reach these state, states continuously it has been um, my experience that these states are spontaneously reached by people that have enormous dukkha and can't deal with it or vice versa enormous dukkha and don't know what to do with it the dukkha part is the more common one such grief such um Anger is such resistance such, that life becomes almost unbearable. And that has not been uncommon. I mean, I would say amongst all the students that I've had, possibly, maybe a dozen, uh, have had spontaneous uh, experience of fortune because of Dukkha since nobody was able to tell them what it was they were looking, some of them, decay the for an explanation because they couldn't forget that explanation so that's also happening and uh, then when they do get an explanation then of course the, what comes with the explanation is the understanding how to do it without having any uh, immense dukkha without outer triggers but just doing it because it's the meditative part now that's a lot enormous difference because then when it becomes the meditative part then um, eventually we become what is called master of the jhana now I don't know that we can say mistress of the jhana the and what it entails being master of the jhanas and uh, gender not with family it means that whoever is doing it can jump from any of the jhanas to any of the others which means that we know exactly what we are experiencing while we are practicing them we know whether we are first, second, third or fourth if we don't know we couldn't possibly jump from first to fourth because we don't know where it is, what it is, how it feels so we can jump from any to any we can go instead of forward from one to eight, backward from eight to one, which is what the Buddha did in fact the um, (coughs) scriptures say that on his death he was doing the jhanas from 1 to 8 going back down to 1 going back up to 4 and dying between 4th and 5th the reason this is mentioned to make it more believable that this is really what happened in these cases we cannot distinguish between legend and history no way we can distinguish that but let's just assume that's the way it was because Mahamogalana, his um, greatest disciple with um, supernatural powers was able to see that that's what was happening so um, I have no way of telling you whether this was really true or not but uh, it is accepted in the tradition that this is what it was and there's no reason why it shouldn't be it's the thing to do on your deathbed so please practice now <laughs> because then it's much too late then you've got to do it, be able to do it um, if you practice now, you see and then you just lie there and do it and death is nothing but a very pleasant transition so the um, master of the jhanas can jump from any to any of them all over the place 1 to 7, 7 to 2, 3 to 8, whatever. Go backwards and get in any time, any time, no matter what's going on. Can stay as long as they want to and get out if they want to. In other words, they have mastery over the mind. One is called master of the jhanas when one has mastery over one's own mind. Now I'm sure you can immediately understand what that means if one has mastery over one's own mind. Mastery over one's own mind which at that time is also has to be quite purified will also be of great benefit to other people. So, if we have the um, a, a, a practice of the jhanas, we can see that there are some things to be done that uh, can provide mastery of the mind or mastery of the jhanas. And also, if the fourth, um, fourth meditative absorption is already a fact, it needs to be so much of stillness that it's not interrupted by outer sound. That is not so easy to do. Mind you, that is quite a tall order. And one does need to start out with a very quiet place so that one isn't disturbed too much because the mind being a magician can do anything. It can even be in the process of going down to fourth jhana and then hear some sounds and get angry or irate, anything is uh, The Buddha's um, example was that when he was practising for jhana that he was sitting at the edge of a river uh, meditating and as he came out of the meditation he realised that while he had been sitting there 500 oxcars had come along and crossed that river now anybody who's been to India or thereabouts knows what one cart does as far as noise is concerned they have wooden wheels and no um, lubrication and nothing that will cushion them against the stones so the noise is Not to say the least obnoxious. 500 of them would be like uh, the worst thunderstorm you can imagine with thunder and then 10 times that much. So we don't have any oxcarts here in Australia, so if you haven't been in those parts of the world, maybe you haven't heard an oxcart, but you can take my word for it, that's what it sounds like. The lawnmowers, yes, five hundred of them. Yes, that's right, that's a very good example. Five hundred lawnmowers all going at once. One is very lovely, isn't it? Mm. Yes, that's right. Five hundred trucks with um, bad exhausts all going at the same time. I don't think it's quite as bad as five hundred of them, actually. But the lawnmowers are good, yes. So, He had a wanderer come by who tried to tell him that how wonderful a meditator he was that he had slept through a thunderstorm and uh, hadn't been bothered by it. So that's when the Buddha said, Yes, I just noticed. You see those 500 oxygen, they came by there. Mm -hmm. So, um, which is the perfection of what Jhana Yes you're not going to get 500 lawnmowers. But if you can do uh, force jhana with one lawnmower going, you're doing it. Splendidly. And if you can do it without a lawnmower going, you're also doing very well. So we have to practice it. And practice means, as far as the jhanas are concerned, and I like to emphasize that daily, one loses the neck of it. Now one can never lose one's insights. The insights, I think I've said that already, but at the risk of repeating myself, and I think I'm pretty sure I've said it, insights are like learning a foreign language. They have to be used, but they don't get lost. They are in the back of the mind. And uh, then when, we, let's say, we have learned uh, a foreign language and haven't used it when we hear it it sounds familiar and as we hear it again and again we are able to understand it but if we had used it all the time we would be able to speak in that language that's insight if we are using our insights all the time we are able to speak with insight or nobody wants to hear us to think with insight But with the jhanas, it's a different story altogether. If you don't practice them, we lose them. You can compare this, actually, uh, I like to compare it with yoga of the mind. Now you all know what we do when we do yoga exercises. We have to stretch and get the body limber and get the muscles and the tendons uh, to a point where it's easy to uh, let's say, touch our toes, that type of thing, whatever we have learned to do. And the the body becomes malleable and flexible. And then we stop doing yoga. And then it all becomes stiff again. We can't get down to our toes. We have to practice It's the same with the mind. It gets limber, malleable, flexible when we do the janas. If we keep on doing them, no problem. If we stop, Let's say it stopped for six months. Why anybody should do that, I don't know, but the justifications are manifold and the ones I've heard are very varied. They all sound uh, logical. They don't make any sense, but they all sound logical. If one stops for six months for instance, one has to re-establish the ability. It won't be as difficult as it was the first time. One doesn't need as much time, but one has to re-establish it because the mind is no longer as malleable as flexible as limber as it was. Being malleable and flexible, it also means that it has enlarged its horizon. See, we have a certain know, most people anyway—have a certain horizon of thinking, and. With most people, it's quite a narrow uh, perspective that they have. It concerns the things they do. It concerns their survival. It concerns the things they like and dislike. It concerns the people they know. Well, even with all that, even our little planet isn't covered. Never mind the galaxy. Never mind the 10,000 galaxies that the Buddha said he had influence over. We don't think of the galaxy unless we're an astronomer. And then we think of it because it's part of our knowledge system. Well, about 10,000 galaxies, nobody has any idea what they're like. I don't. But it just means that our perspective is so limited because we put self, me, and mine in the center. When we do the jhana, the center position shifts automatically, you've got to. at least while we're doing the meditation. And since seeing we have shifted it, it has shifted by itself it does stay a bit shifted to the side. Me, mine, self, I is no longer the the sun and the moon around which everything revolves. There are larger issues at stake and this is only possible that the larger issues are at stake with a mind that has become flexible enough, malleable enough to see totally different states of consciousness for itself. Most people that one talks to, in fact, I I really don't think anybody that hasn't done the um, or isn't engaged in spiritual practice and has done some meditation would never follow along those lines in any kind of conversation. It just isn't part of one's own thought process. But as soon as the mind has become, well, movable so that it doesn't only see those things that we are concerned with in daily living but sees more than that, then it also sees that the um, totality of universal existence has a great influence on each person and takes actually priority over our self-centered ideas. So we've shifted. we the center position of the me. It's not gone. The jhanas don't take it away. The jhanas are not super mundane. The path and fruit moments are super mundane. The jhanas are mundane, but without them, anymore. I don't know how anybody would even get near anything. The Buddha certainly practiced them. The uh, Fourth jhana has as its um, result, and again the uh, the cause for the fourth is of course the third jhana, because there's um, already peacefulness there, and you just let just have into this well uh Has as its um, effect that the mind becomes uh, far more energized. It's like a rejuvenation system. Another reason why one should do it every day. Minds deteriorate that aren't looked after. Bodies naturally deteriorate. And very few people in the world don't do some looking after their bodies in order to. Um, slow down the situation if they can well, it's not always possible but uh, sometimes it's possible to slow down the deterioration because it's something that help along but most people don't do a thing about slowing down the situation of the mind and uh, just say well it's old age and that's it but as we use the jhanas, we have not only the things that I already mentioned, but we also have the medicine for the mind. It's the one thing that keeps the mind sharp, alert, aware. And with that sharpness, alertness, and awareness, the understanding of what goes on in the world is automatic. One has, of course, practiced knowing oneself, so there's no difficulty in knowing everybody else one doesn't have to practice mind reading at all anybody who's been doing four jhanas for any length of time from one to four, knows what everybody else is thinking and um, most of the time, one doesn't use that ability because of the fact that it's totally immaterial what everybody else is thinking. There are moments and uh, occasions when it may become um, helpful, but usually it it's totally immaterial, it doesn't matter because everybody thinking the same thing. It um, the connection, the togetherness of humanity is one, something that we really experience when the, our mind has become clear and sharp enough to see that all the thought processes are all one and It's interesting to know that, but it doesn't have any particular value in your meditation other than the ease and ability for loving kindness of and. I mean, if nobody is different from myself, what's difficult about having loving kindness and compassion? And it's no longer wishful thinking. It's no longer the idea uh, of seeing everything with rose-colored glasses. But it's a natural phenomenon. It is said that after his enlightenment, the Buddha meditated every morning, so you can see even after your enlightenment, you have to meditate and. uh, until they learned in the, the practice, and he threw out his net of compassion, just a matter of speaking. And in that net of compassion, he would try and catch a person, or persons, who had little dust in their eyes, so that he would go out of his way to go and teach that one person. What we can understand this net of compassion to be would have been his um, um, clairvoyance to see um, someone who was ready for the teaching. And he would actually walk the longest distance that I recall in the suttas, the 200 miles, to teach one person, because that person was ready. knew that it was taught to become So compassion becomes a natural resultant, of course, for an enlightened person. But it also becomes so much easier when that um, universal togetherness is felt through the jhana. And the fourth one would probably be the first one where there is any inkling of that because in number 1, 2, and 3 we have a very strong observer one who jumps up and down with glee quite often and says, look, I can do, it's a wonderful I can do the jhana, marvelous, there's not doing anything, it's just jumping up and down with glee but um, <laughs> a, a strong observer in the first three jhanas first jhana, that strength of observation has to be minimized otherwise there's no way of being totally still. The observer is still, I, uh, is still there, only disappears in the past moment, but it becomes so minute that one can have the. No, one doesn't have the idea that it's not there when it's fully But it becomes very minute, and stillness is the overriding factor. Now here, in the seven factors of enlightenment, the factor which is mentioned is equanimity, and that is mentioned over and over again in the suttas as the uh, result uh, of the fourth jhana. I like to put it in a different way. Equanimity is not something that we know in the fourth jhana is something that arises because we can do fourth jhana. And if we know that we are equanimous in fourth jhana, we're already out of fourth jhana. And afterwards when we check it, like as I said, we have to do three steps after each jhana. It's a recapitulation from longer necessary, of course we don't have to do that but certainly it's impermanent and certainly what am I learning? If we then see that there was equanimity, it will not be the overriding insight, at least that's the experience that uh, has come about. The overriding insight out of what jhana at the end is that because the me, the self, was so minimized, absolute stillness, absolute peace could ensue. Now, that gives rise to equanimity, that insight. And I think we'll have to speak about equanimity for a moment, because it's certainly the only one of the four supreme motion mentioned in the factors of enlightenment also because it is usually used as an explanation of force jump, but that I have already explained that it is a result and not the uh, underlying factor equanimity is considered to be the highest of all emotions and of course, the far enemy is restlessness and anxiety and worry, and um, but the near enemy is indifference. And I very briefly did mention that already. Indifference is a kind of protection and armor that put people put around them because their own emotions and the emotions of others have played havoc. Them. and they think that if they just let go of all that emotionalism, then they'll be all right, which partially is true, but only partially, because letting go of emotionalism on the negative side is right, but if you let go of all emotions, you're letting go of loving kindness and compassion. And so indifference is something that does not include loving kindness and compassion. It's cold and dry. And the person who has practiced that feels like, um, a, like a bystander and not a participant. Somebody who is watching the whole proceedings and hopes not to get involved. And if they're practiced in different wells, they're not getting bored. But the result within is one of mm-hmm. inner emptiness, coldness, dryness, disinterest. It's difficult to be interested in anything that does not concern one's own personal survival or one's own personal gratification of one's desire It's a very strong barrier to practice and a very strong barrier to happiness. It's um, easily mistaken for equanimity because the outward signs are similar. A person that has indifference doesn't get excited very much. And uh, they don't get uh, sentimental or worried about things, they're just getting honest. Something like, she'll be right, mate. (laughs) Why that should be feminine, I've never figured out. But anyway, it is not conducive to. The practice of purification, and it needs to be understood and seen in oneself. Having understood and seen it in oneself, one can easily get rid of it because it's a self-made emotion, which is actually (coughs) only imaginary. It has no connection to equanimity. It's imaginary and itself made and one can get rid of it it's not difficult but one has to see it so that is from the first part of equanimity that is an emotion it's not being blank or nothing or bland it's an emotion it's an emotion which is entailed and encompasses in, in Loving kindness and compassion, also joys of it, but recognises impermanence in everything. And if we recognise impermanence, that means that equanimity is part and parcel of insight. It can only arise with insight, and therefore the cause for it in the fourth jhana. Is the understanding afterwards that the self was so minimized in fourth jhana that it was possible to be so peaceful. And so we don't only know the impermanence when in the, uh, in the interseparation, but we also know the unimportance of our illusion of self. Doesn't mean we've got rid of it, just means we know the unimportance of it. Very so anyway important to know the unimportance of knowledge of self, if we can see it for what it is, just um, a constant troublemaker, the only one troublemaker in the world, there is no other, the one that's concerned with me and mine, then we have gained great insight out of our meditative practice or possibly we did it out of the um, contemplation however if the meditative practice does not hold pace with the uh, insights out of contemplation we don't really have the personal experience of it personal experience comes through the meditative um, happening when there is is fourth jhana and we come out of it, even if it was only great, we know this is a different level of consciousness. One where self is not standing in the center position. As long as self is in the center position we are actually thinking. But we have to shift it and shift it and shift it until we can get it to force jhana. And that's why the first three are really not very difficult to each other, because self is still in centre position as an observer. But the fourth one is more difficult, and the mind very often uh, has sort of a resisting uh, effect, also not so easily get left to the device of being quiet. So equanimity in the first place is an emotion, but an emotion which needs insight in order to have any effect on us. Now sometimes, and I'm going to preempt that, people say, oh, but I like my passions. I want to keep them. Well, go right ahead. Then, your equanimity. If one likes one's passions and wants to keep them, that's fine. Everybody has to make up their own mind what they want to do the uh, only the mind that is really at ease and not passionately involved is a mind that can see here so if we like our passions, we are also saying at the same time i like the support system for self that my passion seems to give me because i am passionately happy or passionately unhappy passionately wanting, passionately not wanting, whatever it may be. And that support system is of course used everywhere by everyone. But if we do know about the Buddha's teaching, we can maybe realize that only a mind which is able to be quiet and still and accepting can see things that they really are. So equanimity also means acceptance. Acceptance of of in our daily activities, and not put them at the um, or use them for the epitome of our lives. So all of that arises because we can have a different level of consciousness in fourth jhana we can see that whatever is going on in the world, it is part of the world, but it's certainly not all the rest There's far more. Because we have been able to um, have a different state of consciousness. Now, when we know that, equanimity also is much easier to have within one another. It's certainly never, and I'd like to repeat that, never connected to this interest. A person who is economist has interest because, interest in people and situations, because of compassion. But does not get upset or worried, or anxious, or restless, or angry, or rejecting, or projecting about all the things that the world offers. Because it's no longer the final goal. So we don't really want to use the word equanimity for the state of fourth jhana but rather for the insight which arises out of having practiced fourth jhana and the word for fourth jhana would be utter stillness or complete peacefulness and this utter stillness and complete peacefulness may have different um, grades we have already discussed that. Now because this is our last opportunity to talk about the um, meditative absorption, I'd like to speak um, briefly about the formless meditative absorption. Now the first lot, the first four, huh, are called the rupa jangas. Now rupa actually means body and uh, is translated as fine material meditative absorption with bit long and cumbersome isn't it, fine material meditative absorption and the reason they are called rupa jhanas is that we actually have similar experience, similar things in our ordinary We do know delightful sensation, we do know joy, we do know contentment, and we do know stillness and peacefulness. And I've already mentioned that these words that we use are the same as we use for our everyday experiences. So when we have them in the jhanas, they are, first of all, independent. They don't need outer triggers, and that's the most important aspect of, and from that of course we learn and know that we actually carry all that within. Knowing that we carry all that within brings more joy and more of a feeling of togetherness. But also we have, we can relate the Experiences we have in the first four jhanas, two experiences we have in our daily life. Although the jhanas are far um, in quality and in quantity much greater, there still is a relationship. Now, when we come to the formless jhanas, I call it a-rupa, The uh, syllable Up is non an atta. Atta is me and An-A-N or N an, like you would say it in English An An is pronounced like German R-A-E-O An-A-N means non and Atta means me or I and Rupa means body and a rupa non-body formless formless, meditative, thought, armless, formless, because there's absolutely no connection to anything that we can experience in a daily living there's no connection to the um, physical sensations and there's not even a connection to filling oneself from top to bottom so using and drenching, like the Buddha says. none of that a totally different state of consciousness The fourth jhana is the springboard for the next four. Which doesn't mean that it isn't sometimes possible and happens not infrequently that people who know the first three very well and can do the third one very well um, spontaneously get from the third one to the fifth one. That does happen. Then one just has to go back from the fifth one back to the fourth. But Actually speaking, the fourth one is the springboard, and there are many suttas where the Buddha only explains the first four. There's also an explanation by the Buddha that one which I've already mentioned, that one should on purpose let go of the lower sutta to get to the higher one and that after any of the to go the jhanas and get to the higher one and that in any of the jhanas afterwards one can do part and part. it doesn't matter which one so even after first and second and third however the experience has been that the fifth, the sixth and the seventh jhanas are most conducive for the attempt at a fast-forward which doesn't mean the others are not possible the Buddha said any of them and also again not to wait till the lucky chance arises that one could go to the next child practicing the one one can do so that one becomes more and more perfect at it but also on purpose, leaving it and trying to go to the next one. Now, leaving fourth jhana has the appearance as if one is coming for out of the bottom of the well coming up to the top again. It's just the manner of speaking. There's no well and there's nothing happening, but that's the manner of speaking, the feeling of being down below and coming up. And then the uh, Feeling and experiences that there's an enormous expansion. Now, this enormous expansion can happen just spontaneously. It can happen because one is thinking of it. And we mustn't underestimate the power of the mind that can do the job. It is one of the incontrable which the Buddha would not answer he didn't answer the intricacies of karma he uh, didn't answer the questions about that he didn't answer the question about the um, influence that a Buddha had he didn't answer the question about the beginning of the universe concerned with Big Bang and he didn't answer the question about the power and the influence of the person that can do the job power of mind of the person that can do the job is a factor and the better one can do them of course the more power of mind is there that's natural so it can happen spontaneously it can happen because one is thinking of it now a mind, which is powerful, thinks with power. Thinking with power is different from thinking with discursive. So there are other ways of helping to get to this ajana. And one of them is to go to the then apparent boundaries of the body, they are not the same boundaries that we experience at this particular moment, at this particular moment we experience the boundaries just where our skin ends, well when we do channels it isn't exactly the same, but we do experience having come out of force, we do experience boundaries of the body at some more diffuse level, not exactly Now at the moment it's exact. We can tell exactly. We could take um, a pencil or any kind of instrument and just go around the boundaries of the body. Uh, then we have done four jhanas that is more diffuse, but it's there. So we can go to that and willingly and voluntarily and purposefully expand from there. Keep going. And there the Buddha says, we let go of the separation and the difference which means, and he explains that too, which means we first go from the body out to nature and we no longer differentiate between this body and the trees and the grass and the bushes. We never, we no longer differentiate of the scenes, the villages, the cities, the houses, other people. The expansion goes on and on and on. And we don't uh, differentiate any longer between the clouds and the sky and the horizon and go beyond the horizon with that expansion. Now, if you tell that to somebody who's never heard of meditation, they think that's crazy. Well, that's fine. And uh, anybody who's ever done jhanas knows, sure, why not? They can already tell the difference between the levels of consciousness. Levels of consciousness are self-imposed. And most levels of consciousness that are self-imposed are very um, limited and um, very um, much bounded by separation so the Buddha talks about non-separation and having done fourth jhana that should be a not very difficult. yet to see. One of the difficulties that people have in the past experience with jhanas is that they were told they were difficult. If we're told something is very difficult, our immediate reaction is, hmm, probably won't be able to do that anyway. Better stick with what I know. And if it's that difficult, probably not for me. They were told wrongly. If they're not difficult, they need practice. That's all they really need. So we go from our own body, limitation, boundary, consciousness, further and further. Now we may not need all these stations on the way. We may not need trees and bushes and flowers and grass and valleys and mountains and clouds and sky and horizon. We may just be able to just expand But if we do, we can use all those, just go from spot to spot. Now, as we expand, eventually comes the expansion of unlimited space, the infinity of space, is called. Well, intellectually, I suppose everybody knows that space is infinite. But to experience it is a bit different. In fact, it has the connotation that, and the experience embedded in it, that what we usually experience, and what we usually put our mind on, what we usually think is important to literature. Within all that space, what could possibly be there, that's so important that we get upset about it and the other thing is that this is all after the meditation of course not while we're doing it although in the beginning probably while one is doing it the mind probably uh, reacts to that first or second time that one explains the infinity of space and with that reaction come these thoughts but later when one can do it well one can stay with it The uh, understanding the insights I used afterwards. And the most profound insight which arises from the fifth jhana is the fact that within that space there was def- definitely no single building block, No single person. Certainly nobody I called me, could call me but also nobody I could call you. Nothing. Space. That's all. To experience that, the mind has to be ready. If it isn't, and gets there accidentally, which also happens, very rarely, but it does happen. One can be fearful there's nobody there and yet space is there now space is the material aspect of mind I said mind has two aspects, space and consciousness space is the material aspect of mind and it's everywhere and it's all over and knowing that And realizing the mind that's ready for that has enough purification. It's enormously relieving. None of the things which are usually considered to be so important, other people mainly, and that they must stay alive mainly, or name and fame, or money and health. All of these things disappear into space. Hmm. They're not there. So the mind could be ready for that. It has to have enough purification, it has to have enough insight, it has to have enough lack of hate and greed in order not to be afraid of this. Now that doesn't mean that having these jhanas we get rid of hate and greed. Mind you, getting rid of hate and greed only the non-returner does. The third past moment, improvement. The first one, no hate and greed is even touched. And the second one, hate and greed is, well, we can say half. we get rid of it in the third past So, we can't expect to come out of jhana and have no more hate and no more greed you can't expect anything, but we have a different respect. I like to compare that to a painting that is painted without perspective, which can look quite nice, like Grandma Moses used to paint, without any perspective, just flat, very nice, very um, colorful. But then if you look at paintings by the great uh, Dutch and Flemish painters the perspective is actually the depth of the painting and the depth of the impression that we get from the person there so if we go into a different level of perspective we go into a different depth of understanding and that's what happens when the jhana the formless jhana, particularly our practice. So we have in the fifth jhana the first inkling of a totally different level of experience, which has no relationship to our daily experience, Nothing. No what. None whatsoever. And we can use oh, it's. Quite um, rare that a person would have this jhana um, accidentally. It does need the practice and the purification, the practice of that first four and the purification of mind, because then the barriers are not there. In order to be able to enter any jhana, we have to let go of the five hindrances. Of course, they come right back. But the more we let go, the easier it is to reach higher jhanas. Some people naturally have less of the five hindrances, but everybody has. Not everybody has them to the same extent, but everybody has them. So the fifth jana until the sixth one just like the first jaya until the second one but when we have the light, obviously we have that. so if we see the infinity of space we have to have infinity of consciousness only infinity of consciousness can be aware of infinity of so, what happens if we want to go from fifth to sixth is that we move our attention from the fifth one, which is space and spaciousness, that again is a word which is meaningless because people use it for all sorts of things, um, to that which is experiencing which is the consciousness. And the consciousness has to be infinite at that time so this would be a very quick transition from infinite space to infinite consciousness, it may not work in that case we do as we did when we were trying to get into the fifth jhana. we go to our own personal consciousness awareness which everybody knows and which appears to be limited by the limit of our head or brain. That's apparently by our awareness with life. We can feel it now. We don't have to go to any great trouble to feel that. And if we stay with that, of course, that's the limit we'll have for the rest of our life. That is the limitation. Self-imposed limitation. So we go to that, and then, expand that to become conscious of exactly the same what we said about space first nature without any separation then the uh, everything that we can find trees, meadows, brooks, oceans, valleys, mountains, clouds, sky, horizon becoming conscious of all that awareness. And letting the consciousness flow out past any horizon, past anything that we can become aware of, encompassing all space. So the infinity of consciousness is explained as an encompassing of all space. And as we experience it in that way, we recognize, maybe while we're doing it, which is of course taken a out of it, but afterwards we recognize that this infinity of consciousness means that we don't own a personal consciousness. And again, that there was nothing within that infinity of consciousness which was owned by anybody personal which had any separation from anything but was Cosmic Consciousness and as we realize that it was Cosmic Consciousness the other result from that is that we feel responsible. most people don't feel any sense of responsibility for their anger, their dislike, their worries, their anxieties They are upset. They are nothing at all. They just do it. In fact, they justify all that. But when we realize that this is cosmic consciousness, it's hardly likely that we wouldn't get a sense of responsibility. That anything we carry around in our consciousness settles in infinite consciousness. Because that is what we are part of. And having that sense of responsibility should, would, hopefully does, give one another incentive to purify. Purification always means getting rid of the five in you know to the greatest extent possible. We only get rid of them completely when there is, uh, for the other but we get rid of them to the extent that it's possible. That sense of responsibility that really arises um, with, uh, with a vengeance in 6 jhana should be noticed. And it means that we no longer see ourselves as a totally separate entity that can do what it likes. Thing. They can do what they like, they can think what they like, if they don't stop killing anybody. Or stealing from someone. Or well, we can't. We can't even think what we like. We have a responsibility towards all humanity. We have a. Actually, this um, cosmic consciousness is available to all beings that have consciousness which is far more than just humanity and having this understanding that it's very important what we do because of the fact that how it affects others does not give rise to self-importance because we are standing but there as an objective observer. Fifth and sixth jhana have a more, uh, have more as more a stronger observer than fourth. The observer is there so that we can, after we finish with the meditation, actually know what it means. To be in space and consciousness. Obviously, the words are not sufficient to explain, and the Buddha did not explain. The formless jhanas are not explained by the Buddha at all. He just gives them names infinity of space, infinity of consciousness, and the seventh one, nothingness the base of nothingness. Since it isn't explained, most people totally misunderstand, and since they think it's very difficult to do, they also think that I don't want nothingness, so I won't do it. That's a logical conclusion, which can show us quite clearly how very limited our thought processes are. How it's much more important to have experiences rather than thoughts. The thoughts can only become very um, helpful when the mind has gained strength, purity and care, and then they can become helpful. But when we think, oh I don't have nothingness, why should I want something that's nothing? So I won't do this. That's a typical reaction from a non-trained mind. The difference between a mind and a mind is training and non-training. And the Buddha never used the word Buddhist and he never used the word Buddhism. These are all later inventions. He called people like us practitioners, not Buddhists those who practice, and that's what we practice, not Buddhism, but Dhamma, the truth. An Arahant is an A-seka, a a non practitioner Very interesting, because when I first saw that I thought, oh, that's interesting. That's practitioner, wonder why. You know, but obviously you finish this practice doesn't mean that the enlightened ones don't meditate, they still sure do but they don't have to practice purification they've got it so we are shakas practitioners and this is a, one of the um, things that I often and usually say In Germany, where I teach nothing but Catholics, and they love it, to be told that they don't have to be Buddhist, and that they don't have to practice Buddhism. In fact, it makes them eager to come and do it. But that's not the reason why I told them. I had no idea that that was going to be their reaction. I told them because it's the truth. The word Buddha didn't exist under the Buddha, I mean, why would he call something after himself, I mean, that's not, not on, and uh, so the same uh, uh, thing as far as the person who is uh, practising. Now, obviously what I said about seventh jhana is wrong uh, thought, of which we have innumerable. We can never count all the wrong thoughts. We shouldn't. doesn't matter. Eventually we get rid of them. We get rid of them in two ways of the wrong thoughts. First of all, we might have right ones. But secondly, not only are we going to have some right thoughts, which is also very helpful, but we will also learn not to think all day long. There is nothing to think about. There are only projections for the future and memories of the past and hopes and desires and dislikes. That's all it is, that's all what one thinks about. Now I'd like you to check that out, whether that is really so. And if you see that's really so, I think it will give you the incentive to stop it. Naturally. We have to think when we make a living, when we have to go about our jobs. We have to do that right. Okay. But, I mean, how many hours do people work in Australia? Eight, maximum. Right? So, there's plenty of hours left where one can be instead of think. And when the mind has, and this is a point that's coming want to make, and the mind has the ability to be in the jhanas, it can also be quiet and peaceful out of the jhanas, and not project and hope and uh, remember and and wish and life, just ease, which is another benefit that we get from the meditative experience. It doesn't mean being half asleep that doesn't help at all and it doesn't mean a trance and it doesn't mean not knowing what's going on it just means that the mind is at ease is at rest and we know it and sitting with the mind at ease and at rest is very very helpful for the energy level of mind See that too is of course limited, we don't have unlimited energy That's why of course jhana and also not constantly thinking during the day help us to raise the energy of our mind Now one of the things that, uh, one of the hindrances we have is plus and chakra. Well that's mental The body just follows suit. The mind says, oh, no, I don't want to do that. And the body doesn't do it, but it's strictly mental. And we call it, very often, procrastination. I'm not doing it now, I'll do it some other time. Maybe we will never do it. Doing it some other time is foolish, because some other time something else needs to be done. A mind which has lost over is also a mind that cannot really actualize the Dhamma within because the Dhamma has as a a characteristic a very strong aliveness and a, a very strong bearing on the mind activity so when we make the Dhamma our own then because of the Jhanas to be able to have the mind at rest doesn't mean at all that we become uh, imbued with that hindrance, with loss and torpor and procrastinate and don't do anything whatever needs to be done gets done responsibility is seen and it gets done right then and there but we don't have to think about it. Just do it. And that's a big difference. When we start thinking about it, we use twice as much time. What for? Just doing it, it's much easier. And then the mind can be at rest again. We should know that our mind is our greatest fuel. Um, greatest our mind is treasure, actually, and we should treat it as such. Most people treat it as if it was nothing, taken for granted, it's nothing. And if they are negative or sleepy or disliking or whatever it might be, they think somebody else is this one, or the world's Our mind is our, our treasure. And if we treat it as such and make it a treasure, nobody can take it away from us. If we have money in the bank, the bank can go bankrupt. Which is happening here, there and everywhere. And then maybe we lose the money or we lose half of it or whatever. It's not a treasure. Putting it in a stocking under our mattress is not very wise either. <laughs> Eve might come and take it. There is only one treasure, and that's our mind. And when we do fifth and sixth jhana, particularly sixth of course, we know that this treasure is a um, common one. We all share it. And that also gives rise to one's um, compassion that one would like to actually share the way to make that treasure valuable. It's a great pity that there are so few people in the world that do that. because it would make a lot of difference. I mean, few by numbers. It would make an enormous difference if more people were to make their mind a real treasure and have enough compassion then to share that. We all share in the same mind. Interesting, isn't it? Maybe if we can really get that uh, as a factor of truth, We will feel more responsible for what we're thinking. The thought processes of everyone are common and um, are equal property. I'm sure everybody has experienced that. We can experience being together with a very negative person and getting more and more negative. And later on deciding one should have guarded oneself against that. Well, one needs to guard oneself, of course, in time. It's common property. So maybe that responsibility can be understood um, very well through uh, experiencing a specifically fixed jhana. Now, there's nothing that's business. That, of course, that doesn't mean that there's nothing. It's more like um, if you look into this room at the moment, we see people and cushions and uh, tables and chairs and a piano and pictures and uh, walls and windows, and uh, we see a lot of things that are in here that fill this room up. Let's stay stay with the people and the furniture, the people and furniture. And then we take people and finish out. And then we say, Oh, there's nothing. Nothing in there. But that doesn't mean that we're aware of nothing. We're just aware of the fact that there's nothing in there. That's a big difference. Without having done it, I suppose it might not be quite clear. But what happens in the seventh jhana, which is very important also uh, for one's insight, is the fact that one recognizes the infinity of space, the infinity of consciousness, that both of them, one of them has um, surpassed them and sees them as containing nothing. There's nothing in them there's just infinity there to be seen and that there's nothing in them has uh, sometimes the experience of movement people sometimes experience a movement but most of the time if it's done with um, real concentration what it explains is the fact That in infinity, there's nothing that you can put your finger on. There is absolutely nothing that could be called a building block. There's nothing there to hang on to. There's nothing to be seen, nothing to be heard, nothing that can be contacted with the senses. It's just infinity. Very peaceful, very nice. But maybe you can understand that a purity of mind is necessary in order not to be scared. Of it. If the mind hasn't um, purified enough, the reaction might be, "Oh, I, love it. I don't really want to know that." That I'm interested. I'd rather know how I can live my everyday life without becoming upset. So. That's the first step. That that all has to be done first. The uh, these steps are sort of resultant of having done those first steps. If one gets upset too often, it's not really possible uh, to um, to do the job. Although. A lot of it are coming for versions too.